Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We hope that you're doing well. We've got a new episode for you here on Sennacherib in the War of 1812. And I just want to give a special word of uh, thanks to Jason Stark for producing this episode and uh, to all of you who support us by giving regularly. You can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate if you'd like to do that or give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, But otherwise, we hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. Today we have an exciting episode. I'm Kyle Keimer, and I'm going to be interviewing Paul Evans, who's an associate professor of Old Testament at McMaster Divinity College. And we're going to be talking about his new book, which is entitled Sennacherib and the War of 1812, Disputed Victory in the Assyrian Campaign of 701 BC in Light of Military History. And Paul, great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You know, it's it's funny. I actually came across your first monograph back when I was working on my dissertation. Um, and if for those of our listeners, some of you that might be familiar with that, it's the invasion of Sennacherib in the Book of Kings, uh, a source critical and rhetorical study of First Kings eighteen to nineteen, and it was really instrumental in my own research for my for my dissertation, which was dealing uh, with kind of parallel topics, dealing with Hezekiah and the Assyrian campaign of Sennacherib in 701. So it's a r- real pleasure to get to read this this other book of yours and to be uh, to talk with you today. Now, I know you've got a few other works as well. You've also got a commentary on First and Second Samuel, and you've done a lot of work with uh, Chronicles. And I know you're, you're actually preparing a new commentary for the Nicot series on Chronicles. Um, how's all that coming? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, Kings and Chronicles have kind of been my, my main focus, of course, on Samuel as well. But I love the historical books. So this new book I kind of think of as a sequel to my first one. Nice. That's what I tell my kids who haven't read either of them. <laughs> Not really a sequel, <laughs> but similar topic. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good. It's it's like, yes, I could see how they go together. And and from what I remember, it's been it's been several years since I read the first one. But from what I remember, I could see the, some of the parallels that you're you're building on and, and bringing out. Now, just to, to throw out there for the, the listeners of the podcast, why don't you give us what is the main thesis of the book? And then also what prompted you to kind of focus on this specific topic? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I've always been fascinated with, um, you know, the invasion of Sennacherib and the, the story of Hezekiah told three times in the Bible. And then you have all this extra biblical material. Like, uh, it's fascinating. We have so many copies of Sennacherib's account. And then ideas of how to correlate them. Have always fascinated me. Even when I was a graduate student, I wrote a paper on this, and uh, just kind of get me got me into it. And it, it's so it's an enduring fascination for me. Even starting with the source critical delineations and you know the two campaign hypothesis, I, I thought was really interesting at first. And until I kind of ended up concluding, I don't I don't think there was two campaigns, but it was very <laughs> fascinating to think that the, there's two sources put together in Kings and one is a, a campaign on this year. Another one's another campaign. So uh, the more I've gotten into it, the more there's just so much to say about it. And, and uh, the fact that there's so many sources, archaeological evidence, but also, of course, Assyrian and biblical sources, uh, so much about this, that to reconstruct this uh, 
time, this war, but still no consensus which, uh, <laughs> among scholars. So we got more evidence than we do in most cases, but still less consensus. So it's, there's just so much there. So I was, I'm fascinated by the question of like, how could both the Syria and Judah remember this war as uh, their respective victory? And uh, I, I think that it has, there hasn't been justice done to that question. Uh, many people side with one or the other very often. And so I kind of reexamined the claims of the Assyrian and the biblical texts. And I, I, I did a lot of reading on military history and talk about, you know, what counts as victory? How is victory assessed? How is victory perceived by uh, people in a conflict? And what kind of expectations did people have regarding participating in a conflict? And then what, what that brings to bear on how we understand what these texts are. So in the end, I kind of argue that uh, neither side is principally deceptive in, in what they've recorded or, or their view of this as, as a successful campaign or defense, however we're going to look at it. Because uh, I found so many people saying that basically one of these two sources is lying. <laughs> one's right, one's, one's wrong, one's, one's deceptive. Um, uh, and I find in the end, um, by comparing it with this uh, uh, interesting war, the War of 1812, um, which is between kind of what was uh, became Canada and the United States, where even today, both sides think they won in some ways. I grew up in Canada. I'm Canadian. And uh, I always learned that Canadians beat the Americans back in 1812. And of course, uh, we could never beat the Americans today or any other time. But we always held on to that. I, I was told even in grade school that, you know, the White House is only white because we burned it and they had to paint it white, you know, kind of, kind of silly. But when I went, uh, uh, when I first talked, to, I gave a paper about this at SBL in Boston. And I ended up talking with some of my American friends and they had never heard the idea that Canada thought they won at all. Like, what are you talking about? Because the other side thinks they won. So you got, I, for me, it was this perfect example to look at um, uh, how, how can both sides think they won. And this is in a recent war where there's a lot more evidence than we have here. So by comparing the reasons that both sides perceive they won, and then looking back at the biblical and Assyrian texts, I thought I saw a lot of analogs. So I, st I started with a small paper and then I, it, it uh, ballooned into this whole project, which uh, I, I'm pretty happy about. I think it's an interesting comparison that looking at uh, military history can help inform how we understand this, uh, what, how, how this conflict's been remembered. Yeah. No, I think there's there's so much we're going to delve into here. You you have so many great insights. And I think just the size, or let's just say the, the plethora of topics that you address in this is is quite huge for, you know, it's not a, a super long book, but I mean, what you cover and what you do in here is really impressive. And you're, you know, just one comment to add out there again, you know, the, the point you made about the fact that in the late eighth century, the amount of material we have both from Assyria and biblical sources and the archaeology is probably better than what we have for any other period in in the Southern Levant. And yet at the same time, as you said, there's no consensus about many of the details about what was ha taking place in Sennacherib's campaign against Judah. And there's a lot of questions that really need to be addressed. And sometimes I find, as, as you do in this book, we need to rethink how we're approaching some of these questions. And when we do, there's so many new insights we can bring. And I love the fact that you're bringing in military history. I'm a, I'm a kind of a military history buff myself and, and have done a lot with, with bringing in perspectives of, of military history, the new military history, all these things, as we try to reevaluate and get into the mindset of some of these ancient actors and peoples, which is vastly different from a lot of what we, we experience today. And we'll, we'll kind of touch on that 
um, a little bit later, but I'll just say that, you know, you're, it, it's funny, you, you mentioned, you know, in Canada, you guys always thought, you know, you won the War of 1812, you know, in the US, we thought that as well. And I did a year of ROTC back in college. And one of the claims I remember them saying was that, you know, the Americans have never lost a war, and they've never had a war on their home ground. And yet, um, yes, yes, they have. And as you know, the War of 1812 is the case in point. Not only did they potentially lose, again, depending on which side you're talking about, but Washington, D.C. was captured, the White House was burned, uh, the Capitol was burned, all the major buildings in the Capitol were essentially destroyed. And yet, that's not what's remembered. And that's not the narrative that is told. And it's such a, a powerful example, I think, in, in using the War of 1812 to, to really get us to think about what ancient sources are, are bringing out. So why don't we, we jump into this and say, what are, um, you know, one of the questions you pose in the book, I should say, is what is success? Was Hezekiah successful? Was Sennacherib successful? What, um, how would you define success? I guess is going to be one of the questions that runs throughout this, this podcast. And in order to get to that question, what are some of the issues that you see surrounding Sennacherib's third campaign? Again, this is the campaign in 701 BC to the West. He's already had to deal with some rebellions in the East before this, and just kind of contextualizing for some of the listeners. Um, but, but what are some of the issues that you see with, with this campaign? Well, yeah, like um, when you look at military history, I tried to, I did a lot of research trying to find out what historians, how they would qualify what success is and what it isn't. Sometimes it's hard to find anything stated outright, but there's a lot of assumptions. But through my research, I found a number of things are typically pointed to, um, like uh, the capture of a symbolic item or a city. Sometimes it's a capital or something like that, um, or a forced act of humiliation. The signing of a treaty is, is a very modern one, but in the ancient Near East as well. But war aims is really important. Uh, if the war aims are set out and they're not met, then it's a failure. And there, there's this distinction between communicated war aims and actual war aims, as far as I can discern, perhaps in, the, in this account here between Sennacherib and Hezekiah. But for sure, in the War of 1812, you have some of these, um, I think it's Hull, who claims they're going to conquer Canada. And, uh, and then uh, that's, that's the war aim. Some people said, oh, taking Canada will be just a matter of marching. Uh, there's all these famous quotes from these American politicians. and They're going to conquer Canada. And of course, Canada isn't conquered. But then when they were uh, negotiating the peace treaty in Ghent um, to end the war, the Americans said, oh, no, that actually wasn't our war aim. Like they said, that wasn't official. So like there, there's war aims communicated to Canadians. And they assumed that they win because those warrants weren't met. The Americans are saying that really wasn't our point. Our point was this. And so similarly, you could say with um, the taking of Jerusalem, uh, the deporting of the people, like the Rabshakeh claims these are the war aims when he's talking to the people in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Um, you could say that the Assyrians didn't really care. A lot of historians who kind of favored the idea that Assyria won often say they didn't really want to take Jerusalem. Some even said, who cares about Jerusalem? No one would want Jerusalem, which I, I, I can't see why that would be the case. But uh, it could be that it's not part, of, it's not necessary for them to take Jerusalem and still be victorious. So there's a lot of this uh, expectations. Uh, what, what will count as the war aim? What's understood it? Taking of territory is a big, uh, big issue. Like if you take the enemy's territory, it seems like you've won. So the issue of what territory was lost or gained um, what parts of Judah were lost, or was it just gains they had made against uh, the Philistines beforehand? 
that were lost and redistributed to the Philistines. That's an issue. And there's a lot of debate on what the borders, uh, fluid as they might have been, were after the end of the campaign. But that would be a, an idea of maybe uh, who won, right? Winning the final battle is often a really big issue. And it's hard to know the chronology. We might talk about it with these Syrian texts, like uh, are they written in a geographical or chronological arrangement? There's, there's a lot of anomalies in there. And then even in the biblical text. But it seems like the last battle, according to the the biblical account was won by the angel attacks and, and then Snacker leaves, right? If there is this idea that the last battle was not uh, a victory for Snacker, then maybe Judah could think they won. Um, the last battle in the War of 1812 is um, that the Americans often point to is the Battle of New Orleans, very famous future President Jackson uh, uh, was in charge there. And it was it was probably the biggest victory they had over the British in that war. But it actually was fought after the peace treaty was already signed and making its way across the Atlantic. It just takes a long time for this to get communicated. So Canadians say, well, that doesn't even matter. We already settled for peace before that battle. And actually, technically, there's one small battle that happened after the British won, which would be the last battle. So there's all these debates about this. So maybe the last battle is, is important. A lot of it might have to do with historical perspective. Sometimes the initial perspective on a war might seem it was a victory. And then, you know, years later, you look back and you think, actually, it wasn't that great a victory. In the book, I, I talk a little bit about like the Iraq war, which, you know, mission accomplished, George Bush says very quickly afterwards. And then in retrospect, a lot of people look back and think it would, it was not really victorious. It was, and that's later historical perspective. Mm -hmm. And so it, similarly, the biblical texts are, are written a fair bit after the event. Uh, maybe their historical perspective is they look back and think, hey, things went pretty well for us after the war because archaeological evidence suggests the expansion of Jerusalem, uh, population zenith in the 7th century, um, probably already starting within the dates of Hezekiah's reign, which we might talk about because there's different views of that, of course. But um, so a later historical perspective could view it as, as um, potentially victorious. And then there comes the idea of what expectations are in a war. Um, modern expectations have gotten pretty high where if there's uh, too many casualties, the war is terrible. It's a waste of time. Or if there's any suffering involved, it's not worth a war. But I think in the, in, in the ancient mindset, not even that ancient in, in more recent, uh, not maybe not recent, but history, even hundred years ago, people had a different view of uh, whether a war could be worth it. Suffering uh, or uh, some devastation doesn't necessarily mean the war wasn't worth it. So the fact that Judah suffered, um, uh, destruction of some cities and and uh, uh, but in the end they ended up may, perhaps at least feeling like it was worth it because they had success after as the population grew uh, their commercial interests grew Hezekiah stayed on the throne was not replaced um, as all the other kings in in uh, the Levant were by a snack rib. so you could view that as a victory so a lot of it has to do with perspective what you value um, what what counts as as showing what victory might be and a lot of it is perception uh, well, how they perceive what the outcome of the war was and sometimes we import i think our modern ideas into ancient world yeah i think that this perception that you that you're touching on here is, is such an important aspect not only in your study but i think just in general thinking about so many of our ancient sources obviously they all are written from a specific perspective and so in each case every ancient source even modern sources has an, an ideology of some sort because it's written from a, a, a general perspective or a given perspective our task as modern historians is to understand the ancient perspective 
that these sources are are framed within and not impose our own. And so many times, I think it is difficult because our world is changing so quickly, so fast. Technology is changing things that we sometimes forget or are ignorant of other perspectives that might be out there that you know would have been common even you know 50 60 years ago and i think you you know using not only this war of 1812 but you know like you said i was going to bring up the example of george bush as well mission accomplished well was it um yeah i think of so many other examples in military history in particular where things are done and views come out of it that when you look back and in kind of retrospect like, wait a second, how did you come to that understanding? Why, why do you think that? And you, you draw out so many great examples, particularly from the War of 1812 for the American perspective. You know, we get the national anthem out of this war. The, you know, so many famous military quotes. Um, these are coming out of this conflict that in that specific instance, and historically when they're happening, really aren't what they've been mythologized and have become in modern society. And so it makes a lot of sense then to look at the ancient sources in this similar way and question what's going on and, and why might they also develop these views? Yeah, it was fascinating to me. I didn't know a lot of this until I started researching the War of 1812, but how much you could say was added to the mythology of, of military lore in the United States from this war. Which is a content, you know, it's still debated if they even won the war. But it's like there's these famous lines from people like "I'll try, sir," or uh, "Oh, why those are regulars," or "Don't give up the ship." All these things, or or the fact that they had to wear gray at this one point later becomes an explanation for why this uh, one regiment wears gray, or or is it the West Point? I can't remember. Yeah, my head. Uh -huh. Even though that's an anachronistic thing because they wore gray before this, but now they say they wear it because of what happened in the War of 1812. The, the Star Spangled Banner, of course, is written in the defense of, of Fort McHenry. Mm -hmm. That was right after Washington was burned and, and captured. And then they go and they bombard uh, Baltimore, but don't take Baltimore. And that's more important to the American mythology than the fact that their capital was burned and taken. And from the, uh, I thought it was interesting, I learned from the British perspective, they didn't care that they didn't take Baltimore. They thought they put on a good show of force with all the rockets. Of course, the anthem is the rocket's red glare showed our flag was still there. And uh, totally different perspectives on the same events. So it, it's it's fascinating. I won't ask you to sing, so don't worry. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> Your audience will be glad that I'm not singing. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. And also, I guess the manifest destiny of America kind of comes out of this too. That, and they start to expand west and, and take over. And so there's all this kind of, you could say, mythological things that come out of the war. And then a lot of people in the past um, in biblical scholarship have pointed to, for example, the rise of the inviability of Zion is tied to this, uh, the, the survival of, of Jerusalem in the face of the Assyrian attack. So the mythologies that might have come out of that, too, even though this is a war that's disputed. I found a lot of, a lot of interesting parallels there yeah. between the two. Well, yeah, since you bring it up right now, let's uh, give us a few more thoughts then on how you think this, the perspective could have impacted Zion theology, because there's different debates out there, you know, again, for the listeners who may or may not be familiar, 
the Zion theology is the idea that Jerusalem is inviolable and it can't be conquered because this is the, the domain of, of Yahweh. This is where his temple is, this is where he resides and good luck taking it, not going to happen. And look, we've got proof to show this, right? The city hasn't been destroyed ever since we took over with David. And there's views as to when this theology started. Was it already kind of an original Canaanite type thing? Was it a, a yeah. Davidic um, idea? When David approaches uh, Jerusalem uh, back in Samuel, they say, uh, you'll never take us. Even the blind, the lame could repel you. You know, like it almost seems like in that story that they already had this kind of tradition of Jerusalem not being taken. Of course, David takes Jerusalem. <laughs> but uh, um, there is debate over whether the war of 701 or the survival of Jerusalem against Sennacherib is kind of the origins of it. Or maybe it just kind of uh, solidified it or, or uh, built it up. It's unclear. There's a lot of speculation in there, but a lot of people do point to this event as being at least something that solidified it or uh, made it popularized it. That uh, Yahweh's home is in Zion and it cannot be taken, which of course became a problem perhaps in Jeremiah's day when he's saying, "No, submit yeah. to the Babylonians." They're like, "No, the temple of the Lord is here. We're all good," you know. So, so it becomes a problematic doctrine in a way as well. But it's interesting to me that uh, something like that could cut. If, if there is something to it, uh, it's obviously not my original argument that it's connected to 701. Many people have said that, that it comes out of this uh, event, that if it was actually total, a total defeat, how, how, how is it that uh, this, this mythology comes from it? But it's interesting you have this similar kind of mythology from the War of 1812 for the Americans when it, it could have been. Uh, not actually a victory either. Well, and you know, it, it raises an interesting side topic or a, a related topic, which I think kind of runs through your book as well. And you're thinking again about perspective and how is it that Judah can claim victory, even though say the, the Shvela is decimated and, you know, they lost, you know, many number of cities were, were burned or destroyed as we see from the archeology. span Yeah. But Hezekiah is not removed from the throne he remains. And depending on when we date Hezekiah's reign, right, there's two different main options, mm -hmm. either 7, what, 728 to 698 or 726 to 698 or 715 to 687. It gives you two different possibilities of framing and thinking in a Judean perspective or Judahite perspective, mm -hmm. how victory might have happened. Because if Hezekiah dies shortly after this campaign, maybe it's not so powerful of a claim to victory, but if he does continue to reign until 687, right, we're looking, that's almost another 15 years after this campaign that he's on the throne. And so it gives time for a myth to develop, not necessarily, I mean, the myth could have developed very early on, but it gives you even more time to, yeah. to do this. Yeah. I mean, um, it's debatable which, which set of dates we're going with. Um, either way, the recovery of Jerusalem had already started before he died, even if it was 698. It seems to be archaeological evidence for quick recovery in some parts. Some parts not, especially if it was a later date. And one thing I thought was interesting just studying the, uh, the Assyrian annals for this was this uh, rebel Luli, the king in, in uh, Phoenicia, who uh, escapes, uh, according to the earliest rendition of the annals, the Rasham Cylinder, the Assyrian text, it says that Luli escapes or he fled, but it doesn't say anything about his fate. The later renditions say he died. And then the latest rendition, which is like, uh, instead of a 701, which is when it occurred, it was like 684, I think, is the latest rendition. And it says he died in Cyprus. And they, they make sure to comment on his fate. The later rendition is updated with the death of the rebel. 
Interestingly, they never mentioned the death of Hezekiah. So if he died in 698, why wouldn't they have updated? There's, there's various versions that are later than that, 687, 684. Uh, it's interesting to me that they'd never mentioned, because they could have mentioned that and Hezekiah died and this loyal uh, vassal Manasseh came to the throne. I'm not sure. I haven't heard that come into the discussion about his yeah. dates before, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, that was really interesting. And I, I hadn't seen that either. And I thought it was really interesting the way that you delved into the the Assyrian sources, which, you know, I, I think there's been work done on the, the fact that these are kind of redacted over the years as they're copied and, you know, as a king reigns in power. But these specific points I haven't seen brought out before. And, the, and, and I thought it was really a great way. It, it, it gives credence, I think, to understanding the biblical composition as well. In, in the ancient Near East, right, you're perhaps writing stories down, sometimes close to the event, sometimes well after, but there's a tradition that comes with them and you're in some ways evolving these traditions and thinking about them as time goes on to make them pertinent, to make them relevant, to bring out specific points. You see it with the Assyrian sources as you bring out. You see it in biblical texts in many instances as well. And I think it's a, just a nice parallel that that hadn't been brought out so clearly, I think, in some of the other research that I've, that I've seen at least. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting how the Assyrian annals uh, gloss over parts of the campaign or downplay parts that from a modern historian's perspective may not have been ideal, like Luli successfully escaping, basically escaping punishment. They never mention what happens with Tyre. Tyre is the, the, the capital of Phoenicia there, the island city. Doesn't talk about a battle of Tyre or anything. What happens with Tyre? It's a major, it would be a major victory if he took it. So most historians assume he didn't take Tyre at the time. Doesn't mention the rebellious status of Gaza, whether it was loyal or not. Uh, the Bible interestingly mentions Gaza because it says Hezekiah, you know, attacks the Philistines as far as Gaza. It's interesting what the Bible mentions and then what the Assyrians don't. So the Bible mentions Gaza, they don't. The Bible mentions Lachish. Uh, Lachish is not even mentioned in the Assyrian annals, although of course there's the famous uh, reliefs uh, from Sennacherib's palace. And then there, whether what's going on at Alteca, a lot of people think it, it's out of chronological order perhaps or the restoration of paddy on the throne is very interesting paddy is uh, king of ekron who uh had been handed over to hezekiah it says in the assyrian annals and then it says he restored him to the throne and then it goes on and talks about uh, other things and then eventually gets to judah hezekiah who who he shuts up um, like a bird in a cage well how did he get paddy out of jerusalem it must not be chronological because he just chose to mention it here I assume it was in deliberations with Hezekiah that Paddy was freed. I don't, I don't we don't know. Um, there's this one interesting comment by Elaye. He wrote a, a biography of Sennacherib who says he might have been freed through a commando mission, but with no other explanation. I always thought that was interesting. Uh, I'm not sure what that commando mission would look like, but uh, it clearly uh, things are a little bit out of order and we don't know. And Paddy is never mentioned in the Bible. Nor is Hezekiah working with the Philistines, if that's what's going on, because they handed them over to Hezekiah. Or did Hezekiah uh, force them to give the king and was Hezekiah in charge of their territory? You know, none of that is said. But so both sides focus on different things and, and omit different things. And uh, of course, you have Hezekiah never comes out and submits or bows himself, um, sends his tribute later after you're back in, in Nineveh, and he sends someone to do obeisance, Sennacherib says. Things that earlier, he's always replacing these rebel kings. And he seems to be that Hezekiah is like one of the chief rebel kings. A lot of people think he was the ringleader. That's debatable too. He seems to, uh, he's talked about in language that seems to make him a powerful enemy. 
what comes of them. Well, he pays tribute later. We we trapped him like a bird in a cage, but uh, now most think that language is kind of covering over the fact they didn't actually conquer the city. So there's a lot of lot of it's it's written from a in a way to glorify Sennacherib, obviously, but things historians might look for are kind of covered over. And you can say the same thing about the biblical text. It doesn't talk about everything that happened either. So it was, it was really interesting, a uh, uh, fresh study of the Assyrian text there. Yeah. And, and you, let me, let me contextualize for the listeners here a second. And then my question is going to be just focusing on the biblical portrayal of, of Hezekiah and why you might have that specific portrayal. And it all comes back to being connected perhaps to the line of David. But before, before comment on that, yeah, again, you're, you're highlighting all this discussion, you're highlighting all the issues that we have in interpreting this, this event, which again, we have a huge amount of data for, but it's how do you read the Assyrian annals? How do you interpret them? Um, how do you read the biblical text? What are the text critical issues, uh, both in biblical and Assyrian sources? Are we looking at chronological descriptions of an event? Are we looking at topographical or geographical descriptions of an event, you know, how do we view the role of the miraculous in, in all of this as well? You know, what would the Assyrians, do they believe in miraculous things as well? Or is that only a simply yeah. biblical thing? And then of course, there's always the modern interpreter's view of this. And, you know, look at modern scholarship, there's, you either demythologize some of the elements that are out there because of how you view things, or you allow for the mythologies, myth, the, whatever that word is, you allow for it to be there. Well, actually, I found that was interesting and something that always uh, I had a bit of a problem with um, when I first started studying this topic even was there's so many statements in there that kind of like the angelic attack, if we're going to call it that at the end of the, the biblical uh, account, um, had to be a much later theological reflection of the event. They always wanted to separate it and say it often it gets into exilic, post-exilic, really late because it's such a, 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 a miraculous end right like uh, the idea that the a theologizing of the event had to be later because early on they were just interested in objective history <laughs> and i think that's really problematic i mean for example you look at sennacherib's annals right in his account written one year after it he's talking about the weapon of asher you know overwhelm them they're, they're theologizing right away um, i have no reason to believe that ancient judites would not have theologized if they survived to say hey y'all Yahweh delivered us right away. It doesn't take centuries later to look back and think, okay, God saved us. But that seems to be almost like some of the source critical delineations um, when my, in my first book I looked at, I think that they're often just trying to find a core that's historical and 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 there's kind of an anti-miraculous bent sometimes in scholarship. And you, you so the miraculous stuff is added later. Mm -hmm. But initially you have this kind of cold objective annal like we would want to write today or something like that, which I think is naive. And that's not how the and people in the ancient world or even everybody today might think either. Again, coming back to the issue of perspective, modern scholars are approaching it largely from our frame of view and what is allowable, what is not possible. Mm -hmm. And yet maybe it's not that we need to approach it that way because that's not the way that the ancient people conceived of things and why they're writing things. And so again, coming back to ancient perspective is, is step number one. It's not something that comes later, but it's, it has to be right from the get go of, okay, how do we read this in an appropriate perspective and try to limit bringing our own bias into this or our own worldview into this. And I think at one point later in the book, you make a comment that, we might not have to essentially 
pick or choose which which view is right or wrong because they're both right and and they're they're written from a perspective that is making a specific claim for each audience and it's not cut or cut and dry it's not black and white there's a lot of gray area in between there yeah and a lot of it is perspectival and i i really think in the end it's not that one is being deceptive and the other is telling the truth that they're both um in in today's uh, speak you could say they're they're communicating their own truth <laughs> not really wanting to go there but as much as their own from their perspective they really have a case to that they won or that it was in the end it was a positive development you know um uh, even with the issue of like a lot of people talk about the expansion of jerusalem and the success in the seventh century as due to the pax Assyriaca, and uh basically that uh, because assyria uh, wanted to gain wealth from these territories they set it up in such a way that wealth could be brought in so they wanted in a way they wanted the success of of the levant um, because they kept it meant more coming uh, their way a very economic perspective in some ways i think some of the pax Assyriaca discussion is is imposing a modern mentality of kind of globalization and uh, <laughs> economics into the ancient world. And it ignores sometimes that wars are fought over petty reasons or for reasons of honor and, and revenge and these kinds of things. But anyway, but the Pax Assyriaca may have been part of what is behind the success of Jerusalem. But from the perspective of people living in Jerusalem, success is success. We're prospering after this rebellion. Hezekiah led us into and he retained the throne. And now things are going well. We're growing. We, we've got more money. Our, our economic uh, economy is, is growing. Well, from their perspective, um, it'd be, like I said, somewhere in the book, it'd be, it, any politician worth his salt could spin that in such a way as my policies are responsible for this economic <laughs> prosperity, <laughs> rather than saying uh, this is only due to Assyria. Like, so it, it'd be easy to look at Hezekiah's rebellion as success, given the economic prosperity that followed in the next century, at least from a perspective, maybe from a modern perspective, you could argue against that. Yeah. Well, and again, from the ancient perspective, I think you, you also bring out, you know, as far as they, they didn't necessarily lose any land. If you look at the Assyrian mm -hmm. annals of what Sennacherib did, he, he mentions giving land back to the Philistines, which if you factor in the biblical account, Hezekiah had just taken that land from the Philistines. Mm -hmm. And so really Judah wasn't losing land per se. They were just had, they had to give back land that, really that wasn't theirs and so you can spin that to say we didn't lose any land therefore we win which is what the war of 1812 both sides point to the same thing and say we didn't lose any land it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. it's part of their justification for why they won as well <laughs> yeah and, and that you know it comes back again to what are the aims of each of these sides what were assyria's yeah. aims in in or what was snackrib's aims with this campaign and then what were hezekiah's aims i mean if hezekiah's aim is to survive like Saddam Hussein survived the first Gulf War. Hey, I win. I'm the victor, right? And if Sennacherib's aim is different, right? Is it is it to either open up, or should say, put down rebellions, bring back peace, open up trade lanes, whatever whatever it is? He was successful as well, and so yeah. And uh, the analog with the War of 1812, I thought it was interesting to think of a, an empire perspective on that, because really it wasn't Canada; it was the British Empire. Really, they were fighting, right? And from the British Empire perspective, they were involved in a war with Napoleon at the time. That was their main objective is to beat Napoleonic France. 
And that's that's where all the problems with the United States started from because they were impressing sailors on U.S. ships to join the Napoleonic War because they needed people. And the Americans thought it was a violation of their, their sovereignty. And that's kind of where the war started from. But in the end, once they defeat Napoleon, they didn't really care that much about the War of 1812. The Americans thought, yeah, we did it. We proved that we, uh, we're an independent nation and we're powerful. And the Brits were like, okay, we, we beat the Napoleonic, uh, we won the Napoleonic Wars. We're going to stop impressing your sailors. And that's why we're stopping. But the Americans are like, they're stopping impressing because we fought them. You know, it's just all about perspective. And from an empire perspective, Sennacherib's goals may not have demanded the, the submission of Jerusalem or Hezekiah. I think they would have preferred it in, in my estimation. But um, from one perspective, though, it didn't demand it. The, the Syrians continue to be the, the greatest empire in the region, unopposed largely. So, um the war, it all does come down to war aims and how we might define them. Mm-hmm. What's essential, what's not an essential part of the war. Aim. Yeah. And I think that's where using a military history perspective offers so many added insights that military historians probably would say, oh, well, of course, yeah, you got to you think about these these perspectives and all these things. But mm-hmm. in biblical studies and in archaeology of, of ancient Israel, they're not typically perspectives that you that you come across all that broadly. Um, and so, what in your mind? What was one of the biggest kind of um, aha, like perspective moments in, in bringing in military history to to analyze this this event? Was was there anything that really stood out? You're like, oh my gosh, I've this has changed the way I've just been thinking about this, and I really now it just kind of makes much better sense. Well, I found a lot of the assessments I had read before a little bit simplistic. Like, for instance, saying one is de- one is deceiving, one is not. Or that there's just a clear cut, only one person can win this war. But when you look in military history, not even just the War of 1812, I point to other other wars as well, where people dispute over who won. And it has this idea of perspective and war aims was was really big for me to end. And uh, and also in how we assess, say, Hezekiah. I found a lot of uh, modern scholars look at Hezekiah as a bad king, and they'll say it's pretty straight out because he led them into conflict. And uh, like uh, Ernest Axel Knopf says, a good king is a king who brings as much peace as possible to his times. And uh, that's what a good king is. Or uh, uh, on Manasseh, they write that it's a good indication of success of his reign is it was peaceful. There's no destruction levels found in Manasseh's lane. So as if the ideal of the peace is all that matters. Um, and that's how you assess whether a ruler is good. But looking through military history, you see many times people think a war was necessary. And even though people died, that leader actually benefited our society. The war benefited us in, in sometimes in tangible ways or other ways. But we've often, I think, messed up kind of taking a, a modern kind of more sometimes pacifistic or at least a very few wars are worth fighting view and imposing it on the ancient on the ma- mindset. For example, Clements in his study of Isaiah's oracles that are critical of Hezekiah, he thinks that Isaiah was angered at the rebellion and he says because they were going to involve judah in conflict that's a quote from him so basically he's thinking isaiah is just opposed to any conflict no matter what peace above all else is all that matters and i think he it's really hard to defend that from the biblical text that that's really what the the prophets are all about that no we just need to avoid conflict no matter what it does to our people well you don't you don't see that in the bible i don't think but i think it's just Uncritically, we can sometimes bring modern mores to bear on these texts and not realize it and try and find our mores in them 
when really we have to try and uncover what, how would an ancient mind have thought about this? Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, you have an entire chapter on this kind of modern perspective of how we've been approaching um, not only this topic, but ancient wars in particular. And the, yeah, the whole idea that number one, we're moving towards a world of peace is highly debatable and problematic if you yes. just look at the news. Um, but it, it is this. Yeah, I mean, utopian... I wrote this before the Ukraine war broke out, even. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, but but in the West, though, I mean, I think you're right. There is amongst many people, there's this utopian view that we're moving towards better times, and that war is bad, and that all we have to do is be diplomatic. And this is you know coming out of Enlightenment thinking as well, but. It's not really the mindset that has dominated most of history. I mean, you think even within Christian tradition, which is supposed to be, we don't want to have wars, but there's just war. Think about Augustine, the idea of just war, and it's dominated so much of Christian history. You know, there is a time when you're supposed to pick up arms and fight, or when you can pick up and fight. And even this view is is been simplified and perhaps whitewashed in, in much of scholarship as we th- approach some of the ancient sources and and have this sense that yeah you just want to have peace anything you know success is peace yeah. success isn't necessarily peace though mm-hmm. like I find that uh, ignorance of military history can lead us to think that for like Hezekiah is often criticized because he brought the people into conflict. Um, they must think he was just ignorant or a poor communicator, wasn't a good diplomat. There, there's always a way to avoid war. You know, it's almost like the mindset that is behind that. The belief of avoidance of conflict is always possible if there's through civilized negotiations, which is not, uh, it doesn't uh, bear out as true in, in so many contexts uh, through, throughout military history. Few wars break out due to poor communications. There's a lot of different reasons for wars and, uh, we should watch how we might criticize an ancient ruler as if that they should have just been able to avoid that war. If, if we can all just get along, if we just put down our weapons and talk it out. Well, the other side might not want to do that. <laughs> it doesn't always work out that way. But we cast moral aspersions on people who resort to war. They think they're stupid or they were greedy or they're trying to exploit or they're, or they're just vain or something that. But uh, lots of things are going on and sometimes the, the enemy is the enemy and there's nothing you can talk about. Uh, to say to get out of it. Well, and it assumes too that there's a, a dialectic between the general population and the leaders, and it's the, only those leaders who want to go to war, whereas all the peace-loving people are like, no, 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 don't go to war, which right. yep. you know, yep. isn't isn't generally the case a lot of times. Yeah, exactly, for sure. Well, as we, as we think back to, again to the biblical portrayal of Hezekiah, right, what are you, you bring out some points as to why we have some of the specific details in the biblical account about Hezekiah uh, and why why they might be there. Can you you know say a bit more about that? Because you bring out the, the fact, you know, Hezekiah is of the line of David. What are all some of the events, or should I say, what are some of the factors in your mind that come into the biblical portrayal, not only of how Hezekiah is victorious in this event, but why some of the specific details that we see in the Assyrian annals aren't mentioned in the biblical text and why they're highlighted. Sure. Um, so in 2 Kings 18, you have, um, you know, he's he's like David. He's compared to David. He's one of the few positive kings in, in the book of Kings, right? A descendant of David, he, it says uh, Yahweh was with him. Kind of sounds like Emmanuel, God with us. If, if there's a whole debate over whether Hezekiah is behind the Emmanuel oracle there in Isaiah 7. But he resists the Philistines, which is something that David famously did. Of course, most of the kings of Israel or Judah, should I say. 
don't have these successful campaigns, but it, it highlights that he's he's fighting the Philistines now. But maybe they don't talk about, like I said, uh, his having the king of Ekron, Paddy, or uh, if there was an alliance or was he working with Philistines in this? That's not mentioned in the Bible because it highlights his action against the Philistines because the Philistines are kind of this age old enemy of Israel, right? Like and a good King, even when the monarchy was first conceived back in, in first Samuel nine, when uh, Samuel is going to go anoint the first King of Israel, Saul, God, um, God says to him, he's going to deliver uh, the people from the Philistines. Like that seems to be the, the main reason for the monarchy. And so if you're working with the Philistines, that might not go that well. Although David seems to kind of work with them too. But anyway, so in, in that way, they may, the Bible may avoid some things uh, about what's going on with the Philistines there. But interestingly, the, the Assyrian texts also avoid part of what the Bible says that uh, Hezekiah had attacked the Philistines as far as Gaza, and they don't even mention Gaza. So they all have their own perspective of what they're doing, but it could be they avoid some of the interactions with the Philistines to highlight his David-like quality of resisting the Philistines, perhaps something like that. And this is where reading reading this episode within the larger narrative is instructive and provides you know insight as well. Because if you're only focusing on the, on this narrative, there's the the differentiation, the perspective you get between the Syrian sources and the biblical sources. But then there's the added perspective you gain by considering the biblical text as a whole. Yeah, sure. I mean, because it is part of this uh, larger story. I mean, especially if you hold to a theory of a deuteristic history or something that one editor slash author put this all together, they're, they're probably thinking it in terms of, of connections between David and Hezekiah. And of course, uh, the, the author of Kings is always looking back to David as some kind of ideal. So it is part of a, a larger story. It's not just this one source that we can just isolate um, as just some historical source about the invasion of Sennacherib. But sometimes historians, we want to do that. They often I find mo most of the discussions of this don't take into account the larger, uh, the larger framework of the story, or even a theory of authorship like the Dramistic History is usually not brought up in the context of any historical discussions over this. Yeah. Well, speaking of, that's my, that actually is my my next question for you. What what implications do you see for? understanding the kind of composition and redaction of the Deuteronomistic history. So for the, the listeners out there, right, for those who might not be aware, there's there's different debates about this Deuteronomistic history, which, you know, is basically an early version of, of Israel's history up to the destruction of Jerusalem, um, or slightly thereafter, perhaps, depending on what you want to add. The question is, when is this history compiled? You know, is it drawing from resources that we have from as early as David and Solomon's time, and then are kind of put together in a rough version in Hezekiah's day, re-edited in Josiah's day, re-edited again in the post-exilic period? Or is it a history that only kind of comes together in Josiah's day and then is edited in the exilic and post-exilic period? And how many times is it edited? So as, in, in light of all we've been discussing and thinking about the portrayal of Hezekiah, do you see any implications for understanding you know, the writing or the, I should say the dating of the Deuteronomistic history? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a... That's a very complicated question with a lot of different uh, <laughs> different ideas, like you said. Um, uh, whether there's a Josianic edition updated in the exile, or you got the the three exilic editions, or more of kind of the German Gottskin school. Um, I'm I'm a bit agnostic on it, but I I I, I like the theory in general of, of an exilic redaction or a com compilation put together, but that is based on earlier traditions and earlier sources. 
Um, I, I'm a little um, skeptical on how well we can isolate those sources. For instance, in the Hezekiah story, it was often going back to Shadé and uh, Childs. They, they posit three dis- distinct sources. Account A is just like Second uh, Kings eighteen thirteen to sixteen or something, and then account B is seventeen to nineteen eight or something like that, and then the account B two is 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 post-exilic and they, they separate them all up um in my first book uh, on this i i think i did uh, i showed how it, it's not a very sound uh reconstruction of the sources um i think sources are involved but we're we're sometimes too confident how we can parse them out specifically so my view is something like notes view um not exactly but that uh, somebody put together this history drawing on earlier books some of which could have perhaps uh, circulated sort of in, in a book form on its own. I, you know, I'm a little agnostic on that. I'm not sure, like the Book of Samuel or, or um, Judges. Sometimes they seem to have their own character, but I can see note, notes, um, arguments for, you know, like the speeches uniting them, a lot of the Deuteronomic language, uh, the language of Deuteronomy that permeates them, where Deuteronomy is a standard of judgment for the kings and uh you know, the, the Passover that uh, Josiah celebrates seems to be a Deuteronomistic one. Um, so I, I think that the Deuteronomistic history theory is, is very helpful. And I think that there's something there. I think most people would see that these were all written in light of Deuteronomy. I, I'm not sure about the Josianic um, version updated, um, like the Harvard School. It's an interesting theory. I, I, I think more, I, I look more towards more of an exilic without a separate um, Josianic edition of course proven even proven has the hezekian kind of dating for the first edition which he, he makes a good case for that too i just think that it's possible but pretty hard to prove and i i i see more of a unity to it that it, it could have just been all done in exile perhaps into the post-exilic period but i, do, I don't i'm not in favor of pushing the dates later and later um to where you have chronicles being a uh, contemporary history like raymond person might say or someone I think uh, the chronicler is looking back on a previous work that was already done. And I, I posit the chronicler's uh, writing in the fourth century BC. So uh, I think that the Dramatic history has to be before that. I don't think it's a contemporary competing history, that he's looking back to that and drawing on it. So all that to say is I, I'm not entirely sure what this book contributes to the Dramatic history theory, <laughs> but I, I still hold to something like that, something like a, a Neonotian view, perhaps. What, what do you think about that? Well, it, it just struck me as, as I was reading and, you know, some of the points you bring out that thinking again of the perspective of how the biblical text is portraying this episode and also the specific details that it chooses to include versus the details it chooses to exclude, it makes a lot of sense that, that you might even have an early version coming from the days of Hezekiah as you're starting to craft this mythology of what in the world happened. Well, here, here it is, right? We, we, Hezekiah did this uh, good stuff. He's on the throne, right? He survived. Jerusalem is not destroyed. We didn't lose any land. The Shrelah is, is booming again. Uh, if you look at the archaeological material, either very late 8th century or early 7th century, the countryside of Judah is at its densest kind of population wise. And so everything seems to be going, going well. Again, the question is, whether this is an internal um, process or the, the result of the Pax Assyriaca is up for debate. 
pulling everything together, in my mind, at least, it, it raised the question, well, it, it makes a lot of sense then that you might have this perspective showing up already as a way of commemorating Hezekiah and the fact then that you're tying it to David, this kind of this ancestor from before as well, is one of the, the key markers of that. And it also sets Hezekiah apart from preceding kings that either were pro-Assyrian, such as his father, or who just didn't have to face certain kind of um, conflicts like this. The only other king that really faces kind of military incursion from imperial forces like that is going to be, or the next one I should say, is, is Josiah. Forget the Northern Kingdom, because, you know, obviously we don't care about that at all. But, you know, so it, it makes sense then in, in some regards that you would have some early stories being crafted about Hezekiah, putting him in with this history that is already maybe orally presented in the, the story of your people as you've known it so far, that then, again, is adopted and adapted. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that um, this history was composed in the exile out of whole cloth. You know, like, I think that there were definitely documents, uh, probably some kind of archives. There, things were recorded from these important events throughout their history. And I think the Book of Kings uh, suggests that. You know, they're always recording who the queen mother is. They're, they're, they're recording all these, they have all these details about in the kind of the regnal resumes. It seems to me that they're recording things as they went along. But it, uh, it was probably all put together later into this kind of uh, long narrative, perhaps. But yeah, I think definitely this this would have been recorded at the time. And we don't need to posit centuries in between before they theologized about it or considered this, that it was uh, some kind of divine victory or that God had saved them from this. I think that um, that was what was interesting looking at the War of 1812, how quickly some of this kind of mythology that led to military lore in the United States caught on. I think one of the, one of the catchphrases was only uttered in like June of 1813. And then by September, it was already on a flag on a boat. Like they had it up there. Like just a few months, it became a, yes. a, a hallmark of the war. Like <laughs> how quickly these kind of uh, things can become important. And uh, it does. you don't have to posit these massive uh, amounts of time in between. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a, a great point. I, I love that example. When, when you, you brought it out, I was like, oh yeah, it's, yeah. it's months. And you've got a story, you've got a myth already. And it's a, it's a good reminder, I think, for biblical scholars and or just ancient historians in general, as we're dealing with these ancient sources, is that yeah, we people were pretty smart back then. We don't have to assume that you know the farther back we go, the less intelligent or less complex or less um, you know contemplative they were. They can come up with things pretty easily very early on, and and you don't have to posit the some big window in between an event and the portrayal of that event. Yeah, and the irony of it is sometimes they do think of earlier as being more primitive than later, but then they often talk about the later being more theological than the earlier. It's it's inconsistent the way it's it's sometimes uh, they characterize kind of the ancient mind. Well, Paul, this has been a fascinating discussion. Again, your book, uh, Sennacherib in the War of 1812, Disputed Victory in the Assyrian Campaign of 701 BC in Light of Military History which just kind of rolls off the tongue there, um, is is out. It's uh, TNT Clark for those that are interested in purchasing it. Um, yeah, and again, there's so many other points in there. It provides such a good overview of the history of scholarship for so many of these points that we've kind of just even glossed over in our time here today. So if you want more details, I would recommend checking this book out um, because there's a wealth of information in there. 
and just really appreciate uh, the perspective that you perspective yeah, perspective that you bring. And I, I think it's going to be a really helpful one as hopefully the scholars move forward and think about some of these ancient events is that, you know, what is the perspective that we're approaching some of these things with? And is it an ancient perspective or is it the perspective we ourselves are bringing to that yeah. thing? So Paul, I just want to thank you again. Any any last comments before I sign off? Well, um, I just thought of one interesting thing I found about the War of 1812 that is probably um, completely random, but not knowing that much about uh, American history, I always heard about Uncle Sam. But apparently the origins of Uncle Sam come from the War of 1812, which I didn't realize. So there was this guy, Samuel Wilson, who worked for the Army, who was a meat inspector, and he would stamp everything with a U.S. And uh, due to the problematic nature of food supplies for the Army during the period, um, people who were opposed to the war started saying U.S. stood for Uncle Sam because this guy is Sam Wilson, which I think is interesting because I'm a superhero fan. Sam Wilson is the name of the Falcon in the Marvel movies who becomes Captain America. Oh. And Uncle Sam, of course, becomes the figure <laughs> of the United States that's viewed positively in the future. So anyway, little little useless tidbit, which I thought was interesting in there. That's great. That's no, I, I found it was really helpful just to view uh, the analog with the War of 1812 and thinking how uh, both sides could view, uh, have a very different perspective. And so when you look at the biblical history, when it's compiled, Hezekiah's achievements are compared with David, um, the king who won Israel's independence, Israel, this Assyrian crisis, which obviously would have been hard for the people. As it passed into Judea history, it wasn't seen back, uh, it wasn't, when they looked back at it, it wasn't just this futile and costly struggle that some people now a tribute to Hezekiah that he just brought them into conflict or that they just barely escaped. But it was viewed as a glorious triumph where the God of, of Judah, the small nation repulsed the great empire and showed that he was more powerful than Sennacherib or his gods, which I think is a very early significant perspective that they would have had even initially on. So um, I, I thought it was, it's, it's an interesting analog that helps me, I think, understand a little bit better of how, how Hezekiah is remembered so fondly, even though we have all this evidence of devastation that happened in 701. No, it definitely led me to rethink, you know, just thinking back to my my dissertation from years ago and rethinking my own views I had back then of of questioning that and saying, oh, I think I had a modern perspective on some of these things. So and I appreciate the, the insight that you have brought. Well, Paul, thank you for being here. This has been so much fun. I uh, appreciate you spending the time with us. And Biblical World listeners, until next time, keep on digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.